Hello, and welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Devinney. I'm the lead pastor at Asbury. Thanks for joining us, and we hope this episode will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and maybe entertain you a little bit. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna apologize right here off the bat because my my lovely little daughter picked up some kind of virus at daycare and appears to have passed it on to me. So. So far, it's nothing more than a little congestion and a runny nose, but if I have to, like, stop in the middle and cough or sneeze or something, uh, bear with me. So, uh, since I preached on Job on Sunday, I'm going to kind of focus in uh, during this podcast on 2 Corinthians, which is the the letter in the New Testament that you're reading right now. Uh, I'll give you a little bit of background here. Um, The city of Corinth is, uh, to be honest with you, I don't even know if there's a modern city on that site right now. Um, <clears throat> there might be, but if it is, I don't think it's a very big one. In the ancient world, though, Corinth was a really important city. It was a very vital port city. It sits on this really narrow uh, isthmus that connects mainland Greece to uh, the Peloponnese, which is that, that very odd hand-shaped peninsula coming off of uh, the southeast part of, of Greece. That's where the city of Sparta is, for instance. Um, it may help to look at a map if you want to picture that, but but that's where it is. It's in this tiny little strip of land that connects those two chunks of, of Greece, and the reason why that matters is, you know, if you if you were to visit today, you would see a canal cut through that isthmus that connects the Adriatic Sea to the Aegean Sea. Uh, in fact, if you look it up, you can see some really incredible pictures of these giant cruise ships sailing through that canal, and it looks like there's just like a few feet of space at most on either side between that ship and the walls of the canal. It's incredible to, to go look at because um, the the canal was dug like in the late 1800s, and so it's definitely not built with modern ships in mind, but nonetheless, they put cruise ships through it. Um, so the, the canal is a modern image, and in the ancient world, there was no canal. People tried a couple of times to, to build it, but both times the project just sort of died. So the, the city sort of sits in the middle of, of the isthmus, and then there's two ports on either side. Um, so you've got one port that, that faces the Adriatic, one port facing the Aegean, and the, the distance between these two ports over land is about 10 miles. Whereas if you tried to sail around the coast of, of Greece it would be an additional 200 miles to your journey. Now, remember, in the ancient world, it was very unusual for ships to sail across the open ocean. Um, there's a few reasons for that. People, some people think it has to do with their... They, they had not quite figured out how to navigate according to the stars yet, and so they needed to sort of hug the coastline so they would know where they are. Um, I don't know how accurate that is, in all honesty, because there is there is mounting evidence that ancient people sailed quite a bit farther than we thought they did. I, I mentioned in, in a sermon a few weeks back, we we have some interesting evidence actually that, that sailors from ancient Egypt and ancient Phoenicia and, and Rome actually made it across the Atlantic uh, on more than one occasion. Um, it makes you sound crazy when you say stuff like that, but the, the evidence is um, kind of shocking. So uh, it seems like they probably, and of course it's possible those people did not actually intend to do that and they got blown off course. It doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, 
uh, from uh, from many of them, but it is always a possibility. But nonetheless, it is true that the majority of sailors in the ancient world did not like to sail across the open ocean, and a big part of that probably has to do with the way that their ships were built. Their ships were not the most sturdy things. They were relatively small and very lightweight, and that meant that they really didn't have much in the way of, of room on those ships to carry supplies for themselves. They didn't have really very many places to sleep. And so you would sail along the coast, and then at, at night what you would do is you would actually pull up onto the shore, and you would literally pull the ship up onto the shore because the ships were small and light enough that you could do that. And you would sleep on the, on the shore, and then in the morning you'd push the ship out again into the ocean and take off. So they hugged the coastline. Uh, which means that a place like Corinth, where you can cut 200 miles off your journey, is going to make your, your sailing trip a lot faster and a lot cheaper. And so what they would do is you would pull a ship into the, one of the two ports in Corinth, and you would unload all the cargo, and then depending on, you know, with a bigger ship, what they would do is they would unload the cargo, the cargo would be carried overland to the other port and loaded onto a different ship, and that ship would then carry the cargo the rest of the way. With smaller ships, what they would actually do is they would unload the cargo, and they would carry both the cargo and the ship across the land to the other port 10 miles away, put the ship back in the water, load it up with cargo, and send it on its way. What that means is that Corinth is economically an incredibly important place. It's a very, very wealthy port city. Uh, by Paul's time, it is, you know, it is the trade route that connects the city of Rome with the entire eastern half of the empire, which is which is important because the eastern half of the empire is probably the most heavily populated. Um, it's definitely where the most wealth is in terms of things that the Romans can exploit. Right, That's where the gold mines are. That's where a lot of the mineral mines are. Uh, it's also where a lot of the crops are being grown in the eastern half of the empire, specifically in Egypt and in Judea, where the Jews live. Uh, that becomes important later on. Uh, a lot of, so a lot of the food that keeps the city of Rome fed, a lot of the raw materials that keeps the city of Rome in power, those are coming from the eastern part of the empire. So you've got a lot of traffic that flows through Corinth. It's a hugely important city. Uh, so it's this very wealthy, very metropolitan city. Um, all that trade and business brings people from all corners of the empire into Corinth. Uh, and it's also the capital of the Roman province of Achaia, which is Greece. Uh, and so the Roman capital of Greece is in Corinth. It's not in Athens. Uh, so this is a hugely important city, big Roman colony, large Jewish population, actually. And in Paul's time, it, it, it's probably even larger than it had been before because around the time that Paul is visiting the church in Corinth and talking with them and writing these letters... Uh, the Jews in the city of Rome have been kicked out of Rome. The Emperor Claudius in 49 AD kicked all the Jewish people out of Rome. And a lot of them would have gone and settled in Corinth, including uh, Priscilla and Aquila, who are mentioned by Paul, uh, by Paul by name in a couple of his letters, including the letter to the Romans. They, at one point, were living in the city of Corinth because they got kicked out of Rome and they, they settled in Corinth. So Paul, the, the Corinthian church seems to be a, a, a group of Christians that Paul had to like lavish a lot of attention on. <laughs> they have lots of problems. Um, he visits them multiple times. He writes them many, many letters. They send him letters asking for advice. Um, by the time we get to 2 Corinthians, we have this, this 
um, unusual situation. This is kind of a sorrowful letter. Um, he references in this letter uh, something else, which is depending on on where you're reading, what translation you're using. It's, it's he calls it a letter of tears or his severe letter. Uh, either way, there's clearly a letter that he sent in between First and Second Corinthians, which has been lost to us. Uh, we don't really know what it contains. But we can, we can piece together some of what happens and what motivated the writing of that letter as well as what motivated the writing of this letter. Okay, so he writes 1 Corinthians in response to a couple of things. He writes the first letter to the Corinthians in response to, one, a letter that he received from the church in Corinth uh, asking for advice, but also in response to a visit from some of the Corinthian Christians uh, detail in, in which they sort of shared some of the internal conflict that church was experiencing and, and asked for him to provide advice and help them sort sort out those those problems. And he sends that letter, and then he sends his disciple Timothy to Corinth, although we don't really know what happened when Timothy went to Corinth. Um, and, and by the time Paul writes 2 Corinthians, Timothy has returned from Corinth, and Something has happened that has soured the relationship between Paul and the Corinthian church. Now, we know that Paul visits Corinth between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. So, if in 1st Corinthians 16, 5-9, Paul makes these detailed, he shares at least these detailed travel plans where he's planning to travel to Macedonia and then down to Corinth and then on to Jerusalem. But something that that Timothy tells him when he gets back, and, and we just only know in vague terms here what happened. Um, Timothy returns from Corinth. Paul is in the city of Ephesus at this time, ministering to the Ephesians. Uh, Paul returns to, uh, Timothy returns to where Paul is, brings some apparently disturbing news about the state of affairs in Corinth. And this causes Paul to change his travel plans. So now instead of going to Macedonia and then traveling down to Corinth and then on to Jerusalem, he now sails directly to the church in Corinth. In Corinth. And his plan now is to sail to Corinth, travel up to Macedonia, then back down to Corinth and then on his way to Jerusalem. And we know, we know from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, as well as chapter 7, verse 12, that when he arrives in the city of Corinth, He's the object of, of some sort of hurtful attack made by one of the individuals in the Corinthian church. They, they insult him. They accuse him of, of something. He, he doesn't give us the details here. Um, and while that individual is attacking Paul in this way, there is no attempt made by the rest of the church to support Paul at all. He's just sort of left alone. And so this turns out to be a very painful visit. And he doesn't want to repeat it. So he changes his travel plans again. And instead of returning to Corinth after he had traveled to Macedonia, he sails from Macedonia straight back to Ephesus and doesn't visit Corinth again. And it's at that point that he writes what he calls his his severe letter or his letter of tears to the Corinthians. And even though we don't have it, um, we, we do know, we can sort of piece together from what he says in 2 Corinthians, that that letter called on the Corinthian church to take action against the, the, the this person who had hurt Paul in such a way and to basically to, to 
demonstrate their innocence in that attack and to say that they don't support that man and that they do actually still have that love for Paul that motivated them to begin with. And that's about what we know. Um, we know also, right, so Paul sends someone, probably Titus, to Corinth with that letter. We know that Paul expected that when Titus came back carrying the news of how they responded to that letter, that he would, that he seemed pretty confident he would get a positive response. Um, however, it's not clear that that happens. Or I guess more, more accurately, what seems to happen is, uh, for whatever reason, Titus is delayed. And we don't know what delays Titus. Um, but it seems that Paul was right, actually, to, to expect a positive response. Because when Titus finally arrives, we see in 2 Corinthians 7, 6 through 7, that he gets he finds great consolation in the news that, that Titus had brought, right? And Titus basically shares with him that the Corinthians have this uh, have great affection and loyalty to Paul. They they demonstrate this by punishing the one who'd caused him such hurt. And Paul responds to this news by writing a letter, which is 2 Corinthians. And it's certainly uh, you know, 2 Corinthians 1 through 9 is, is a letter written in response to the good news that the people of Corinth had, had done the right thing, had punished the person who had so insulted and attacked Paul. Um, and so he says, he states in, in chapter 7, he's glad, he's glad that um, their response to his severe letter um, justified the fact that he has so much pride in that church, justifies his confidence in them. And, and he... Um, he, he goes to great lengths in this letter as well to explain why his travel plans had changed, why he didn't come back to Corinth. He's trying to, you know, really kind of build up this relationship and make sure that they understand his frame of mind when he didn't want to return. Because he doesn't want them to think that he just doesn't like them or doesn't doesn't care about them anymore, that he's so put off by what they've done. He's, he's really taking the time to be very pastoral here. Um... And he does this beautiful thing in, in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, right? He's overjoyed the Corinthians had, had been so vigorous, right, in, in how they punished this person who has offended and hurt Paul. But now he urges them to forgive and restore the one who did it. And so, again, you see the gospel message here at work. Okay, great, you've made it clear he did the wrong thing. Now listen, welcome him back. Make sure he's a part of the church. Make sure he's he's restored uh, to to the community, to the body of Christ. Now, at other points in the letter, Paul also is going to have to um, defend himself. And here's where it gets interesting. We have this as one letter in our Bible, just 2 Corinthians. But it seems like the first nine chapters of 2 Corinthians are one letter. And this is a, a very happy 
joyful letter overall. It's it's really primarily a, a happy thing they're sending uh, in response to their their desire to maintain their relationship with Paul and demonstrate their love for him, and he's very happy about this. But chapters 10 through 13 appear to be a second letter, a different letter entirely. And, and this happens because these letters, as they get passed down through the ages, right, they're on these scrolls, and the scrolls get worn down, and parts fall off, and then they get combined into one thing. Um, but it really does seem as though the last, you know, ten, as beginning in chapter 10, we've got a, a new letter written for a different purpose. And this is his final letter to Corinth. And in, in these chapters, he is responding to accusations from, from people who he calls false apostles, who have apparently raised some suspicions in the minds of the Corinthians about, Paul, about the validity of Paul's ministry and the truth of the gospel he shares with them. And, and these chapters read like this very, like, a, like it's a desperate attempt to bring the church to its senses to win their loyalty back to Christ and win their loyalty back to their spiritual father. Uh, and he has this great moment where he, he warns them of, his, of, of a third visit he's planning. Of, he's planning to return to Corinth and he says, listen, if you, don't, um, if you don't get your act together before then, I will demonstrate my authority. And it's not clearly what he means by that, but I love it. I love the, the whole threat of him demonstrating his authority. I have no idea what, what he planned to do. Um, but I love to, to think that Paul is so angry. He's like planning to go in and, and just like physically punish these people or something. I, you, you just have no clue what he plans to do. Um, we do know he returned to Corinth a third time, but it appears that nothing special happened. So evidently this, this letter uh, that he sends warning them that he would have to demonstrate his authority was sufficient that, that they got their act together. Um, now, as far as what was happening that was causing these false apostles to uh, sort of plant these seeds of doubt in the Corinthians' mind, we don't really know for sure, but there's one really interesting theory. So the city of Corinth has all these shrines to different Roman gods, and there's, there's a couple in particular that are associated with miraculous healings. And people will come from all over the empire to come and be healed at these shrines. Um, and we also know that there were many apostles and Christian preachers in the early days who uh, did a lot of healing ministry. So they would pray for healings and people would experience miraculous healings. It happens all the time in Acts and in the Gospels. It still happens today, by the way. It's really cool to see. Um, and, and Paul certainly lists healing as one of these spiritual gifts that, he, that he's telling the Corinthians about uh, in the first letter to the Corinthians. He mentions healing specifically as a spiritual gift. So he clearly thinks it's valid. But Paul himself doesn't seem to have that gift. We, we never hear about Paul really doing much in the way of healing work. Now, Peter, we do, right? Other apostles, we do. Paul doesn't seem to be blessed with that gift. His gifts mostly seem to lie in preaching and teaching. Uh, so one, one really interesting theory that I think holds a lot of water is that some... Uh, some apostles, and, and he calls them false apostles, by the way, probably because uh, Paul, as well as Peter and the other former disciples, now apostles, seem to, seem to use that term apostle to refer to someone explicitly who has, who has physically seen the risen Jesus with their eyes, right? Had that actual encounter. And so that includes 
the the people who were there when he appeared after his resurrection, and it includes Paul because Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, but it doesn't really include anyone else. Um, so he's not necessarily saying these people are teaching false things. He's saying they didn't see the risen Jesus. They're not actually apostles. They're they're preachers. They're something different. Um, but he calls them. So he's, he's talking. What what they're probably doing is these false apostles very likely have the gift of healing. And so they come to Corinth, and their ministry is that they would probably travel to the churches around the Mediterranean, practicing their healing ministry. Wonderful thing. It's seen, and it's possible that what's happened is, uh, because Paul does not have that gift, they are perhaps casting some aspersions on him and on his ability uh, as an apostle and on his calling as an apostle. They're calling his ministry into question, right? If he doesn't have the gift of healing, how good can his ministry really be? And so in these last chapters of 2 Corinthians, Paul has to defend his ministry. He talks about the signs of his apostleship, uh, which is why there's there's some credence to this idea that they were practicing a healing ministry, and since Paul couldn't didn't have that spiritual gift, they were maybe claiming that, listen, if he was a real apostle, you'd see him working miracles like these. And Paul saying, no, that's not, that's not actually the sign of an apostle. That's one of the spiritual gifts, but the sign of an apostle is the truth of the message he preaches. And you all know that I preach you truth. So the end of the book is mostly a defense of Paul's integrity and his ministry. Really interesting stuff. Um, and that's 2 Corinthians. It's really two letters, and the first one is joyful. It's, about, it's largely about reuniting the people together. Um, sort of celebrating the fact that they were willing to do the right thing, to punish someone who had wrongfully hurt Paul, uh, to, to manage those relationships. And then the second letter is one dealing with these false apostles and the accusations that they have um, and, and establishing the validity of Paul's ministry. And this is, this is a really, I mean, there is so much power in, in signs and wonders and miraculous things and, and incredible spiritual gifts. And it's good to read that Paul is saying, you know, that's all great, but the reality is the, the only true sign of an apostle is the truth of the message he preaches. I don't know how actually important that is for, for you all, but for me as a pastor, it's really good to read it. It's encouraging to read that, that the single most influential of all the apostles, the one who planted all these churches, who wrote like a like most of the New Testament, wasn't really out there performing miracles. He was just out there preaching and teaching and, and showing people the love of Christ. For you all, what that means is you can do the same things that Paul did. If you don't have the spiritual gift of healing, that's fine. Neither did Paul. Paul wasn't even a full-time preacher. Paul was, uh, well, the word that gets used for what he, how he earned his living could be tent maker, could be leather worker, either way, right? He was a craftsman. When he traveled to these places to plant churches, he worked during the week plying his trade, and on the Sabbath is when he preached. Paul was not an ordained pastor. Which means 
In some ways, Paul had more in common with you all who are listening to this than he did with me. And this is a prime example. This is a prime example of how God calls people to spread the gospel, to spread his kingdom. Paul was not a full-time pastor. Paul was not actually a pastor. Paul was a tent maker who loved Jesus and who decided to tell people about it. Which means any one of you can do the same. Paul wasn't performing signs and wonders. In fact, it seems very rarely was he actually preaching to large crowds of people who believed what he was saying. Most of the time, if he was in front of a large crowd, it was people who thought he was crazy. Most of his most effective ministry happened in small settings. Quite likely with people who were just having conversations with him over a meal. It was the every everyday, ordinary relationships that Paul built that were so incredibly effective at transforming the world. So bear that in mind as you read Paul's letters. Remember, he's writing to people he knows. He shared meals with them. He's prayed with them. You all may have the same spiritual gifts that Paul has. You may have a lot in common with him. Which means you can do what Paul did. And I think that's just a beautiful message. So, until next week, my friends, God bless. We'll see you on Sunday.